everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're very glad to be speaking with Vicky Lay, partner and head of impact investing at Artesian, a global alternative investment management firm specializing in public and private debt, venture capital, and impact investment strategies. Vicky is the diversity, equity, and inclusion chair at Artesian, and also founder and executive director of She Syndicate, an NGO she founded to support women working in finance. Vicky, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Please tell us about yourself, Vicky. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to Artesian and a career in venture capital? So I was born in Sydney, Australia, in the western suburbs, which is the not-so-polished part of town. And my parents were actually refugees from East Timor. So I find the fact that I was born in a developed country a complete privilege. I got to go to university. My co-founders there. I ended up studying a um, business degree and then ended up doing a business with the people in my Business 101 class. It was a very natural progression for me to move from entrepreneurial family into my own um, startup in education and then into artesian, into venture capital on the other side of the table. And so that was my story of how I um, got into the firm and I guess what led me to my journey of working with empowering entrepreneurs. So I think this is really terrific, Vicky, because in our podcast, we talk with a lot of people who are immigrants or refugees or children of refugees, and it just shows that there's so much potential and talent in the world, and that given the opportunity, so many of our fellow world citizens could be as successful as you are. So thank you for showing that this is possible. So you were a tech company founder yourself at a very young age, and Artesian wrote your first check. What was the experience of pitching, and why do you think you were one of the less than 3% of all female founders to raise venture capital funds? Maybe because I was a co-founder with three other male founders, (laughs) so that probably helped. But yeah, no, it's really quite stark, the numbers, the fact that less than 3% of female founders are actually receiving capital. And I think one of the reasons was almost a naivety. I I think growing up where I had grown up in my own uh, family dynamic and with my own social circles, it was just about how hard you work and you get out there. And it was only until I started pitching in the Valley, so I went to Silicon Valley and I flew there to uh, raise around that I really noticed the difference. For example, I would be pitching and my co-founder would be sitting next to me and then all of the questions would be directed to him even though I was the one pitching and I was the one answering, it'd still be verified through him. And so that was quite a sobering reality because I had grown up in Australia where I would say the inequalities that occur are less stark than they are in the US. And so I really felt that big difference when I was trying to raise in different geographies. My diversity or my gender really started to come to the forefront and that led me to really start to assess and think about what the systemic issues were for female founders, which has led to all of my work around She Syndicate, as you mentioned. So that's very interesting because I think a lot of Americans would be stung to hear that gender equality or gender inequality is worse in the United States than in Australia. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think it's probably unintuitive because 
I always saw the US as, I still to this day, I really believe there's this amazing spark that happens over there that fosters innovation and creativity. And there is such an open platform for discussion and varying opinions. So I think that's a great thing about the US. But there is a very different history than a young country like Australia has. We obviously have a lot of issues with our history with our Indigenous population. So definitely don't want to downplay that. But because of my background, being an Asian refugee from Southeast Asia, coming to a developed country, it's a different experience and it didn't naturally translate. Whereas in the US, I think there's a much longer history of human rights, a much longer history of massive change and maybe still some systemic things that are happening within the culture or within the, the corporate systems. I guess we were just younger and able to, able to have those things, I guess, laid out before us. But like I said, my lens, it's almost like this blinders on because I've come from a very specific corner of the room and I definitely can't, I know that's not a fact in political circles in Australia. We've actually had massive issues around sexual harassment in the past quarter. And so I think it was just my own personal experience and I, I felt my gender more so when I actually left Australian shores, which was funny. That is really interesting. And I think it's also interesting that you felt more discriminated against in Silicon Valley because California has the reputation of being the frontier of the United States where things are new and new ideas come about and there should be more equity. But we know from experience and anecdotes and the experience of, say, a woman like Ellen Powell, that the venture capital scene in Silicon Valley was about as gendered as one could imagine anywhere. And recently we spoke with a Swedish professor who studies gender in investment decision making. And she was saying that there's very gendered language in Sweden, which is a gender equality champion. So I guess uh, these are structural issues that we face everywhere. So Vicky, Artesian and UNCDF are very glad to be partners on a women's economic empowerment fund. Please tell us how that came about. Well, for the benefit of your audience, I will tell the story, but as you were very much involved, it came about through a mutual discussion and passion for the area of gender inequality and trying to solve for solutions which could try to move impact and capital at scale towards the issue area and trying to do so in a creative way. And what happened was we were at a Ford Foundation event and talking about issues in this space and then the mutual passions overlapped and then as you do when you have two very different organizations one a non-governmental organization focused on the development space in the poorest countries and then a private company global investment management looking at it from a different lens coming together for a co-created solution I think is a I guess the spirit of SDG 17 partnership for the goals which I um, think is super important for us to try to move the needle on these big sustainability targets that we have as a world. So that was the genesis behind the Women's Economic Empowerment Bond Fund was organisations coming together to try to co-create a solution that may look a little bit different, that may solve something that is such a big issue like economic empowerment, which actually the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report just reported it would take 267 years for us to close this gap, which is a decade longer than last year. Unfortunately, COVID-19 had, had unequal impacts on women and therefore that increased the gaps. And so when you have such a big problem like that, you're trying to think about ways to increase efficacy of solutions. And so as practitioners in impact investing and as fund managers, trying to sew together a solution that 
hits multiple areas of impact at once is actually quite a unique thing to do in the funds management industry when everything is dot your dot your I's, cross your T's, do things in a square box. We really wanted to try to raise the standards of what it means to do gender lens investing. And just for the context of the audience, the product in itself is a corporate bond fund, which rewards public companies um, that have best in class policies around female empowerment. So things like having policies that promote pathways to leadership, actually having diverse boards and diverse diverse teams making in decision-making seats, having the types of policies that promote fair work compensation and balance and parental leave, non-biased recruitment processes, all of these things will help to support women. And from an investment perspective, the reason why we did it that way is because we have a very high conviction as investors that the business case and the financial returns of investing in women pays dividends. And actually, from our perspective as a corporate bond fixed income investor, we really understood and have high conviction around the financial business case of investing in women and what that means for the bottom line of companies. And from a corporate bond perspective, um, how that reduces the fat tower risk associated with potential defaults. When we approach any impact problem, we absolutely try to test the financial business case first because that's what we have to sell to our investors. And by doing so, that allows us to really think about solutions at scale because at the end of the day, the thing that's going to make the most difference is actually having a solution that's successful, that is gender labelled, that is called women's economic empowerment X fund and having that solution deliver multiple layers of impact, like contributing to the work that you guys are doing at UNCDF in the poorest countries to ensure that we don't leave any women behind. That's all baked into the impact thesis and into the, the business case itself. Thanks, Vicky. And for our audience, just to say that Artesian created a bond fund, which they're very good at, and they've done many times before. And UNCDF gave support to the gender lens on the fund. But Artesian is also donating a third of the management fee to both UNCDF to lend to female entrepreneurs in least developed countries. And also a new NGO that you started, Vicky, called She Syndicate, which is supporting the promotion of women working in finance to senior level positions. So it's quite a package that you put together, Vicky Lay. So congratulations. And we are very happy to work on this with you. Thank you. And thank you so much for all of your support. Happy to do it. I think both of us have worked long enough that we know a lot of people are interested in working together and lots of people have great ideas, but not everybody can deliver. So when you meet someone who says, let's work on something together and they make it happen, it's always a real pleasure and a privilege. So Vicky, what do you see as the future for gender lens investing? What is the experience that Artesian has had bringing this gender lens corporate bond fund to the market? And then what do you see as the future for VC investing focused on women-led businesses? So let me take the first question first, future of gender lens investing. It is different in different markets. Something that I've noticed about pitching the Women's Economic Empowerment Bond Fund in the US, in Europe, in Asia, and then coming back to home base in Australia, I've just noticed a really different, I guess, a different acceptance of ESG investing, gender lens investing, and where the market is at in terms of understanding the business case for all of this. So I think the future of gender lens investing involves mainstreaming the understanding that doing so is actually going to create financial 
returns. You're not sacrificing any risk risk returns for your impact that you're going to create. It is absolutely in addition to what you're getting as an investor. So that's the first thing is mainstreaming that understanding that conversation. The second thing is to drastically scale the amount of assets under management that are in this space. So we're already seeing really strong adoption of gender lens in being incorporated into ESG and rightly because there is a lot of global data from McKinsey, from Harvard, um, from Goldman Sachs, all supporting this business case. So what we're seeing is a massive trend in increasing AUM every year. And these numbers are being recorded and announced at things like the Gender Smart Investing Summit, different indexes that are covering the commitments globally. So that's the second trend. And the third trend that we're seeing in this space is the intersectionality of gender across all of the sustainability goals, all the SDGs. There's definitely an overlap between gender and climate. So we've seen a lot of strategies come out that hit those two together. We definitely saw intersection with race last year because everything that was happening out of the US and trickling globally. And then also recently this year, we started seeing the intersection of gender with peace. And what does that mean in terms of structures and products that can try to hit multiple, multiple relevant sustainability agendas that are occurring on a, on a more topical standpoint? So that's a great thing is I'm seeing gender being seen as a, it's not a attack on at the end, it's trying to be embedded directly into strategies from the get-go of design. That's great to see because that is the goal of mainstreaming, isn't it? To make it so much a part of what everyone's doing that it's no longer a a little subcategory off by itself. Exactly. What would be ideal is if we just stop saying gender lens investing in the same way we stop saying ESG investing. It's just investing. If you are looking at the material, you're looking for material financial advantages, things that are going to help you with risk assessment of an organization, you should be considering all factors, whether be they environmental, social, governance related, gender falling into that lens. And a great perspective that I have been getting just because I've been talking with a lot of veterans in the industry or ESG and they've been there from day one, they were coaching me through how to talk about gender in different markets for different audiences. And I think what I'm noticing is I've been having to adapt my pitch to be less, hey, this is my passion story. I'm the daughter of refugees and here's my spiel. Like that works in particular markets, but I notice in more reserved audiences or audiences who are used to seeing numbers on paper, I find the better way to actually approach that is to be very understated and say, you're definitely not going to be a loser by doing this. And from what we can see in the data, there's actually a goldmine to be found in investing with a gender lens. And here's actually the data to prove it through our backtesting, through our, our deep um, dive due diligence that we've done as a fund manager. Why wouldn't you want the ad- additional impacts of, of impacting, of helping women, of not just women the developed world, but also the developing world? Why wouldn't you want that? It's a bit of a no-brainer. I package this all. I know so I'm going off on a, a long-winded answer here, but I, I think the importance that I'm trying to say is If you're an impact person trying to make your case, hold your passion behind your back. Know it's the core that drives you, but make sure that you're presenting your story in a way that suits the audience, that suits their values and the way their perspective and how they see the world. Because it's only by doing so that we can try to move the needle. You don't have to be right. You don't always have to be right. You just have to drive action and change.
Absolutely. And also impact investing only works if the investment part is strong, right? We can't exactly. make a case that this is the right thing to do if we're losing money. So you have to be competitive on both sides. What about venture capital investing focusing on women-led businesses? Do you see growth in that area? Absolutely. We've actually launched our own uh, female-focused fund on women-led businesses in the Asia-Pacific. We will be looking at Series A and Series B stage tickets, which are a big gap in the market. There's actually not a lot of people doing that. There's quite a few firms, quite a few funds in Europe and the US, but Asia-Pacific is just, just this massive gap. So we're filling that and we're very excited about supporting investments there. And the reason for doing so, once again, from that financial unit fund manager perspective, trying to deliver returns on all aspects for our investors, our belief is that talent is equally distributed. So everybody starts off the same. You can have a great female founder as you can a male female founder, but unfortunately, opportunity just is not. So not everyone's going to have that same economic access or that financial inclusion within the system. And so therefore, from a financial perspective, that's a really great opportunity for investors to um, participate in because you've got this undervalued, underpriced asset. And by doing so, from the impact perspective, the reason why I'm personally so passionate and excited about it is because when you invest into $1 into a woman, the studies have shown that she's going to spend 90% of that back into her community, back into her family, back to grow the economy. And actually by having women equally participate as men in the workforce, as entrepreneurs, we can actually add $28 trillion to global GDP by 2025. Now that to me is an exciting economic proposition. So even if you're not on the bandwagon for gender, for impact, for whatever it is, you really can't ignore the business case that's being presented. It's a no-brainer and that's why we've done a gender lens focused product on in both of our asset classes in fixed income and in VC and we plan to do a lot more in the future. That's terrific and we are now seeing lots of data. The recent Harvard Business Review report statistics increasingly showing that diverse teams and women on management teams outperform non-diverse teams in both financial return, profits, and in lowering the cost of borrowing. So there are real financial benefits to having women in leadership positions in addition to all of these impact benefits that you're talking about. So congratulations, Vicky. You were recently promoted to partner at Artesian, which is a terrific accomplishment. We have talked in the past about the barriers to women and especially young women reaching these very senior positions in fields like venture capital, partly because of the financial burden of buying into a partnership structure. So what can businesses do to reduce the barriers that face women, particularly young women, and get more women into these jobs? So the kosher answer to this is mentorship and having great diversity, equity, inclusion policies. And I think those things are baseline. Every organization needs to be doing that. And to be honest, if you're not doing that, you're going to get you're going to get in trouble for it. So I don't really want to talk about all that bread and butter stuff. Personally, I feel like the real barrier for women in finance or in these decision making jobs, it's women themselves 
holding themselves back. So I'm trying to, I want to understand, it's very important to equip them with the tools and the skills, of course, in terms of technical, technical literacy or, you know, financial literacy or whatever it is that you're trying to advocate for within your industry. That's all very important. You must have mentorship, et cetera, et cetera, and great pathways. But I find you can have all of that laid out in front of a diverse woman or diverse leader in general, and they can still not lean into that seat they can still they can do all of the work to pave a red carpet to the decision making seat and refuse to sit down and this has happened time and time again with people that I've hired that I've mentored I've done this myself as a woman as a diverse leader and what I find the thing at the end of the day that I really need and that people need is they need somebody in their corner doing the hard emotional work with them to say, you are not alone in this. I know this is hard. And I know you feel like when you go into a room with everyone who looks different, you feel like you're wearing a potato sack (laughs) and you've got to deal with that on a daily basis. I get that. And let's try to grapple with that and do it incrementally in a way that you feel comfortable because the worst thing you can do for someone who's not confident in themselves and who doesn't feel ready to fill a decision-making seat is to force them into that seat or to force them to accept the higher pay or to force them to have sudden responsibility over a massive budget. It's just going to, you're pretty much setting them up for failure. So I feel like the piece that's missing is that incremental coaching that comes alongside someone who's diverse because they face so many cultural, systemic, perspective barriers that really prevent them from stepping up into their greatest self, which they absolutely have the potential for, but they just don't have the support systems because our corporate, our work systems, our uh, you know HR systems, they're not designed for the diverse leader. They're de- designed for the vast majority. And so really stepping outside of your comfort zone and thinking about what how would a diverse leader feel in this scenario? What about their background, the fact that they grew up poor? They grew up where there was a scarce house where they didn't have any food. But that was like that kind of thing. It leaves emotional scars and it can be easily translated and triggered by very basic day-to-day work, work environment. So I'm going to give you a very personal story about where this is translated in my own life coming from a diverse background. I recently got in trouble as a partner because I wasn't claiming enough expenses because I was feeling like I had to earn my keep as a woman, as a new woman partner. And I was like, I don't want to take the piss. I don't want them to feel like I am overspending my budget. I had to be sat down by our managing partner and said, Vicky, you are our partner now. You deserve this. And we don't want you to not do your job because you're not, you're feeling like you can't spend money. And so this type of stuff, it's not written in any handbook. And I was going through that silently on my own it wasn't till I sat down and had that conversation had a good cry and then realized that oh you know what that's the normal what my background having to earn your keep whatever that cultural story that's going in my head that was a different that I want to try to recorrect that story now and that's going to take me a bit of time but I just want to share that because at all levels as I also coach CEOs at all levels there's always that personal emotional work that needs to be done to allow you to get to the next level as a leader and that is absolutely true for diverse leaders and anybody else trying to make waves create something do something crazy lead a team it's it's pretty much a universal struggle we go through and I just don't think that we as organizations support support people enough on this journey thank you for raising that Vicky that makes me think about 
say, elite colleges where they make scholarships available to students from very poor backgrounds. But if you don't have exactly this emotional support you're talking about for that young person, they're coming into an environment of, say, great wealth and great abundance. They may not know how to do the most basic things and they need somebody in their corner to support them. And I agree with you, that's not talked about enough. People talk about mentoring, they talk about building the pipeline, but how do you make leaders from different backgrounds feel culturally comfortable and emotionally secure to take leadership positions in a structure, in a power structure that has never looked like them and has never welcomed them in the past? That's a much bigger issue. So Thank you so much for raising this. And I hope you are now spending a lot of money in your role as partner (laughs) and compare yourself. Exactly. That's excellent. (laughs) What do you know now that you wish more female founders knew now that you've been on the other side of the table for a long time? Whatever you're asking for, double it and then double it again. Okay. Tell us more about that, please. So this kind of links back to some of the stuff I said earlier, but there is a definite trend I'm seeing in all of the women's empowerment work that I do and all of the coaching I do with women in underselling our strengths, abilities, skills, and most importantly, our ability to navigate the unknown. For some reason, we don't feel we can do something without having all of the qualification ticks that we've listed in our minds. And so what that does, it naturally translates in the data to lower valuations for women, for the same companies, same track track records, and they are getting lower valuations, they're getting less money. And because they're asking for less money at lower valuations, they're giving up more of the, giving up more of the companies and therefore, and also not having enough to finish the job, which then perpetuates the whole cycle because then they feel even more unconfident. They're going out again, raising more money and all of these perception issues. My thing that I would say to everyone is, yes, whatever you're asking for, double it and double again, because... You are guaranteed you're under selling your own ability to navigate and to deliver. And you probably don't have any data around what's actually what's actually baseline for a business like yours in your industry, et cetera. And and I actually, in the space of from the perspective of female founders uh, raising capital, often the amount of money that you need, it's always, like I said, double and double it again anyway. So it's best to have more resources than not. One of my mentors who actually, she successfully exited two public companies. And she said to me, she goes, I've never asked for less than a million dollars in my seed round. She said, don't even think about asking less than that. You can't do anything with less than that. And so that's the kind of mentality that I, I would love to, if I could pick up and implant in every woman's mind, I would say, don't ask for less than a million dollars. You know, what you're asking for, double it and double it again. <laughs> It's amazing. And I do think I see the evidence of this conditioning and this training in almost every woman I know has had to be trained to negotiate for her salary, to to say, I am worth this much because the market pays this much. We're we are raised, many of us, to just go along, to say, oh, you're going to pay me? That's so great. Well, thank you so much. Where men are raised to go out there and negotiate and get more and ask for numbers that are just astounding because they think they deserve it. And I remember I had one boss who said, a man will apply for a job on potential and a woman will not apply until she is 50 times overqualified. 
So mm-hmm. I love your advice of saying, don't settle for less than a million dollars. Go out there and be as bold and audacious as all your male colleagues, because that's what we need. And that's what your business is worth. And that's what your time and your energy and your work are worth. So mm-hmm. is, this the, is this what you would change, Vicki? What one thing would you change if you could to increase the flow of finance to female founders and help women in finance reach senior positions? I would try to change that statement that I mentioned earlier, which is talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. I want opportunity to be evenly distributed. Everybody should have the same economic access, regardless of what color their skin is, where they are born, and absolutely what gender they identify as. None of these things should be barriers of entry into the financial system, and we should all um, be working together as a world to try to make sure we all have the same starting point. Thank you very much. We agree, which is why at UNCDF, we are working so hard to focus on the poorest countries to make sure that all those brilliant women and men who are there have the same chances to succeed that we did and that our children will. So thank you so much, Vicki. You've achieved so much in your young life, and I can't wait to see what great successes and massive impact you will continue to have as you uh, rise even further in your career. Thank you also to our audience for tuning into UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.